Uh, turn with me, if you will, to First Peter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 6, uh, finishing the series that you've been looking at in your morning services. If you get one of the church Bibles, it's in page 1017. This is God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Uh, when we decided as a cluster uh, to swap round you so that we could introduce uh, ourselves as ministers to each of the congregations and just prove or otherwise that we were all orthodox and all in the same uh, wavelength, and we all said that we would just whatever passage that was planned for that Sunday would be given. And uh, I gave Jonathan a great one in Acts, um, and Norman's given me the end of a series of which I wasn't part of from the beginning. And uh, so forgive me if anything I say it seems to be like a repetition of what Norman, well, my kind of hope is what I do say is a repetition of what Norman has been saying. But what I want us to do, first of all, in looking at this passage is to look at the big picture before the letter begins to draw to a close. Peter is writing to those who are facing persecution. And that means in the midst of it that they are confused and they are discouraged. Earlier on in the letter, he writes them and says, look, don't be surprised that such a thing is happening. And what Peter shows them in their confusion and what Peter shows them in their discouragement is this. He says all the way through, it is a consistent theme. Don't first look at your circumstance, look at Jesus. Don't let the circumstance shape your heart, but let the promise of Jesus and all the way through the letter, in the way that the Bible does, all the way through from Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, what is the most repeated command in the Bible? Who knows? We'll have a wee pop quiz. I'm going to traumatize you. Who knows what the most committed command in the Bible is? No. The most repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. And as God says, do not be afraid, he knows that there are things that we are going to be afraid of, but he also knows that there is an answer to the fear that we feel. 
And all the way through, he says, look at Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Think of Peter when he steps out the boat. And everyone remembers the Peter who sank. But he's the Peter who actually got out the boat. I've never walked in water. But he did. But the moment he looked at the wind and the waves and turned from Jesus to look at circumstance, he began to sink. And all the way through, Peter is saying, don't be surprised at the circumstance that you are in. There is a different perspective. God isn't going to save you necessarily from it, but he is going to save you through it. Look at Jesus. Look at his scars. Look at how he suffered. And now through it all, remember that you are never alone. For anyone who's coming this morning with a hard and difficult circumstance that you're living with, I imagine that one of the immediate feelings that you have is one of loneliness. No one else understands. No one else gets it. I can't tell anyone what this is like. And the Bible repeatedly says, look at Jesus and know that you're not alone. Don't be surprised at what you're going through. And as a church family, encourage one another. And how should they respond to their circumstance? How should they respond to suffering that is not their fault and not their doing, that is unfair, that is not even simply the suffering of life because of sin in it, but it is actually there's the devil behind it who wants them to give up? How should they respond? Well, all the way through Peter, it's the same. Trust God. What is the thing? Forgive me for expressing like this. It's not entirely orthodox. What is the thing that makes God smile most? It's when you take him at his word. The sin in the Garden of Eden, when the devil comes and says, did God really say? It is trusting the promise of God that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are his. That he holds you and loves you. Trust God. Live faithfully, whatever the circumstance. Stand firm, keeping your hope on the promise of God. And what should you always remember? That you always keep your eyes on a destination. Most of our world lives by the mantra that comes from Robert Louis Stevens. It is better to journey hopefully than to arrive. But if you don't know where you've come from, and you don't know where you're going, see the bit in the middle? Doesn't make any sense. I always loved the pharaohs. Purely because they spent their whole life building these great big pyramids to fill it with gold. And yet they just returned to dust. No idea of where they were going. It's like the businessman who spent his whole life climbing the ladder. When he reached the top he said it was propped against the wrong wall. But always to remember you keep your eyes on the destination. That God's timeline is not your timeline. That even in the circumstance, that even in the grave. How many of us have felt it when we've been beside the loss of a loved one? That God has failed us. Even death itself is not the end. And as we try to share with the children, the reason that we can stand firm is that it's not about you. But it is about him. It's not about your strength, but the one in whom you place your trust. It's a difference between having faith in a strong bridge and faith in a weak bridge. 
There was a missionary who was once taken in a travel and he went across, a, he was in the bus and the bus driver said, everyone has to get out the bus, this bridge won't hold us. And everyone looked at the bridge and said, it's great, we'll be fine, just drive across. He says, no, we can't, we're too heavy, you need to get out. And everyone disgruntled, eventually get off the bus. The bus drove across, they walked over afterwards and got on the bus and as soon as they did, the river came and swept the bridge away. The same missionary was on another journey and he came to a river that was flowing fast and furious and it was nothing more than two bits of rope. And he was told to go across the other side. He won't. He said, it won't hold me. And much to his amazement, his weak faith in a strong bridge took him across. It's not about you. But it is about him. And here we have all these themes that are drawn together as the passage closes. If you look at what you looked at last week, that was about being humble towards one another. Well, what Peter now does is that he turns from being humble to one another to humble yourself before God. And if you look at the passage in front of you, you'll see what I mean. Look at what it says in verse 6 and verse 7. It says, humble yourself before God. And then Peter goes on to explain what a difference humility makes. What a difference humbling yourself before God makes. The difference that it makes God. I don't understand the circumstance that I am in, but I trust you. Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Not my will be done, but yours. I remember over the past year going through a particularly difficult circumstance and being in the toilet. It's the most dangerous room in the house. Do you know you're more likely to die in the toilet than any other room? But there I was in the toilet. No one's going to the toilet anymore. I don't know why I just told you that. I do apologise. But now some of you are now listening again. But it's just great. Why is he talking about toilet? Um, I forgot what I was going to say. But anyway, there I was in the toilet. And life was falling apart. And I had no idea what was going on. But see the peace that came in that moment of saying, God, I don't understand, but you do. Not my will be done, but yours. It's not about me, but it is about you. And in 6 to 7, he shows what it means to humble yourself before God. And then he shows the reality of life in verses 8 to 9, that there is an enemy who prowls around. Who just as in the Garden of Eden, he hated Adam and Eve because they were loved by God. He hates you because of what you mean to God. And resisting him matters. In verses 10 to 11, we see the God of grace and what understanding of eternity changes. For the way that it gives life a completely different perspective that the grave is not the end, that the grave is not the destination. You just sang Psalm 23. What does Psalm 23 finish on? It doesn't finish with the dark valley. It doesn't finish with the grave. And it gives a different perspective. Verses 12 to 14, it is that reminder that we're never alone. It is not a postscript. It shows the reality, a glimpse of what is in heaven fully captured here that we are never alone because we are not saved to be a rugged individualist. We are saved into a family of faith with brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is that confirmation that we're not alone. 
Saved into a family of faith because of God's grace. Saved into a family of faith to stand firm, not as a gladiator. Have you ever thought of yourself as a Christian and you think, you know, I put on my spiritual armor and you think of yourself as gladiator? You know, Russell Crowe. That's not what it is to put on your armor. It is as a centurion to lock shields together. To create a wall that that protects not only you, but the one beside you. Stand firm. Care for one another. No peace. And here there are three big themes. Well, there's four big themes. And we're going to tease three of them out in a moment. But the first big theme that flows through these verses is that discipleship is active. That discipleship is deliberate and purposeful. And it's not dull. But discipleship begins in humility and coming to God and saying, God, I can't, but you can. And the only way that you can ever cast your anxieties on God is to come in humility to say, I can't, but you can. Maybe you're a micromanager. But if you're always holding things in, then you're not giving it to him. Humble yourself. The proudest people in the world are those who refuse to pray. The proudest people in the world are those who refuse to pray. Cast your anxieties. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Know your enemy. Do you notice how many action words there are here? And so the idea that being a Christian disciple is some kind of sophorific experience where you just fall asleep or you sit beside the pool and you just get your hot dogs out and you just have a glass of gin in your hand and a beach towel, that's not it. It is active and deliberate. Be sober-minded, be watchful, know your enemy, resist him, stand firm, even in dark and difficult places. That's what it means to be an active disciple. The second theme is this, that just as there is that call to discipleship, what Paul is saying through here is, behold your God. Look at how he's described the God with the mighty hand. The God who exalts you. The God who lifts you up. The God who cares for you. And am I the only one that thinks that in those dark and difficult circumstances, those are the hardest things to hold on to? Because it doesn't feel like that. And so often our feelings tell us a lie or make us believe a lie that God is no longer mighty, that he'll no longer lift us up, that he'll no longer care for us, that he's no longer a God of grace. Let me ask you, when something goes wrong in your life, have you ever found yourself going, What did I do wrong? I did this or did that. Can I say that if that is your reaction, you've not got grace yet. You've not got it yet. Because you still think your relationship with God is defined by reward and failure. But here Peter says it is about his grace. What he will do. And just as this passage in one way is not about you, it's it's not about what you will do, but it is about what he will do. Look at how it closes. He will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish. It is about his dominion. He's the one who is on the throne. Nothing can thwart him. He is the one who holds you. He is the one that the wind and waves still know the voice of. 
He is the one who is still the light in the darkness. God hasn't changed. He can't. Circumstances for us change. Feelings for us change. But he doesn't. He can't. And through it, the third theme is that it helps us understand suffering. It helps us get that right perspective about what is happening now and what will happen then. It reminds us that in the midst of some suffering, but not all, and we shouldn't give the devil more credit than he is due, but there is an enemy who only seeks to do harm, who wants you to take your eyes off God, who wants you to be filled with despair and doubt and angst and rob you of assurance. And he wants you to say to God, you don't care for me. You don't love me. And the last big theme is keep going. Held in his hands, we need each other. So let's deal very briefly with three of them. And Norman says he usually preaches for about 55 minutes. Is that right? Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, my congregation sometimes feel as if I do. So what is the hardest thing here? The hardest thing is not suffering. The hardest thing is verse 6. Humble yourself. And it is so much harder to humble yourself when you are in a dark valley through no fault of your own. And the real temptations in the dark valley, whether it is suffering that we see in First Peter caused by those who hate the gospel or the suffering that comes from living in a fallen world, the real temptation is to stay in those moments, where are you God? And to turn that cry of complaint to one of accusation, don't you care? You said you loved me. Did you ever wonder why Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not just because these are the words that Jesus uses on the cross and point to. It is because God would know that there would be days and circumstances where this is how you felt. And God's grace is such that he gives you the words to use. Isn't that remarkable? For those of you who have got children, at some point in your life, the children's life, they may have said to you, you don't care, you're the worst parent in the world. Now, there is every temptation to believe the child. But it's not true, is it? But because you love them and because your love is greater than your, their fear, you wrap them in. You don't believe them because you know it's not true. Well, God knows it's not true when we say, where are you? Don't you care? But the hardest thing is to humble yourself, to trust in a dark place, and to remember that God is sovereign. That he reigns. I've got a friend who goes to visit another friend. To tell him when things are hard. And when things are sore. And he goes to visit this other friend. For one reason. He always finishes by this, saying this. Remember the Lord is king. Even when it doesn't feel like it. There's a throne in heaven. And he reigns. 
And my temptation now is to tell you all the bad things that have happened in my life. It's not about me. It's about a God who reigns and is sovereign. And what a humble heart does is that it learns to trust God's timing. What a humble heart does is that it casts all your anxieties on him. The proudest people in the world do not pray. They either think this, and forgive me, it's fine if you want to break the cluster after this one. There are people who say, you know, I can't pray with others or I can't pray out loud. Why? Because you care more of what they think of you than what God does. What is that? That is pride. There is a type of pride that says, I can fix it. I don't need God. But actually, humility causes you to come to God and to cast all your anxieties on him. What the humble heart does is not just trust God's timing. It doesn't just pour out your heart to him. What the humbling heart does is that it keeps the head even under pressure, even in the midst of storm. And it puts everything into his hands, even we want to fix it. And is there anything more humbling than genuine prayer? I can't, but you can. Not my will be done, but yours. And it's trusting his promise, trusting his love, trusting his sovereignty, even when the circumstance that you are in causes you to doubt it. Even when the feelings that you have make us believe something that is untrue. I've got a friend who gets so anxious about the relationship with his wife that when she is ever late, he runs up the stairs to check her wardrobe to see if whether or not she has left it. He felt something that was untrue. And there is that temptation that because feelings are so strong to believe something, I am not loved. I am not forgiven. I am not his. I'm not going to heaven. I am not worthy. I have no value. And all the time God says, look at me. Look at me. Trust his promises even when what we feel makes us believe something that is untrue. And through it all, part of that act of discipleship is that there is an enemy who must be resisted. And the thing about the devil is that he doesn't fight fear. He doesn't fight when you have good days. He waits for you when you are in the valley. And you're in a dark and difficult place. And he's not just an enemy who, who seeks to come and to tempt us into moral failure, although he does. He is an enemy who wants us to doubt what God has said. Did God really say? Think of it for a moment. Think of a particular sin that is in your life. And you're tempted to look at the sin of others and say, yes, God has forgiven that. But you look at the sin in your life and go, it's too much. Why doubt his forgiveness which is full and free? He doesn't love you, does he? 
the enemy who doesn't fight fair. And what does God promise in 1 Peter? He says, when you resist him, he will flee. And John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, he describes the lion being on a chain held by God. But let me say this to you, and I'm hoping that this sinks in. When we resist him, he will flee. But when we fail, God doesn't. When we resist him, he will flee. But when we fail, God doesn't. And when we fall, the devil does two things. Not only does he tempt us, lead us into temptation, but he then goes, look at what you've done. It's a double bind. When we fail, God doesn't flee. And what God promises is to hold us, and there's action to take, to be watchful, to be sober-minded, to put your armor on. But what God wants us to do is to lift up your head, lift up your heart, and to behold him. Look at me. Not the circumstance. Look at me, the one who cares for you. Look at me, the one who will exalt you. Look at me, the God of grace. Look at me, the God of eternity. Look at me. And C.S. Lewis, the magician's nephew, right at the end, you read this as Diggory is anxious about his mother. He writes this, up until then he'd been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know. Have you ever realized that God is sorrier for the pain in your life than you are? And even Jesus, when he stands outside the tomb of Lazarus, he not only weeps, the words that he uses are one of anger. Don't touch one of mine. This is the God that cares for you. He doesn't stand at a distance disinterestedly. And neither is he impotent. He's the one that holds you fast and says, I know. Because he is the God of eternity. Not even the grave gets the final word in your life. What will God do? He will restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish. This is what he will do. And think of this for a moment. What is your present suffering compared to eternity? Think for a moment for a timeline. Your life 
is like this. But eternity just keeps going. The eternal God holds you. There is a pattern in the Bible that people don't often see in Genesis. We talk about morning and night, don't we? The Bible doesn't. The Bible says there was night and then there was morning. There was death and resurrection. There was the cross and then an empty tomb. We are not people of the night, but of the morning. A resurrection people. What is this? Compared to eternity. Behold your God. And what God knows is that we are not created. The first thing in the Bible described as not good is Adam being on his own. And so we're saved into a family. And it's easy to read the closing verses from 12 onwards just as a postscript is to be ignored. But it is that reminder that we are saved into a family of faith. Called to discipleship. Called to stand firm. Called to love each other. Called to know peace. It gives you a glimpse of heaven. You're never alone. And so let's close with a question. What does it mean to stand firm? Well, says Peter, it's a matter of the heart. And it's a call to discipleship. To stand firm is to look at God and to go, his grace is enough. That just with this, he holds me and I don't need to be afraid. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecutions, calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So don't be surprised at the time of trial. Don't be surprised at the storm. Don't be surprised at the enemy. Don't be surprised at the dark valley where you can't see where you're going and you don't know how long you'll be there. Don't be surprised at the feelings that threaten to overwhelm you. Don't be surprised. But look at him. Behold your God. Stand firm in his grace. Stand firm knowing that he holds you in his hands. Stand firm in his word. Stand firm in his promise. Know the destination. If the grave was the destination, what a miserable life this would be. Growing old is not for the faint-hearted. Know your destination. That allows you to know, yeah, if there was night, But there's a morning. Yeah, there was a valley. But there's a mountain top. 
Yeah, there's a storm. But there's a one who says to the wind and the waves, come and be still. Yeah, there's a grave. But there's a hope of heaven. There was night. But the day will break. Do you ever notice in heaven there's no night? And for those of us who love our bed, that makes me anxious. There's no night. Did you notice in heaven that there's no more tears? Why? Because everything that would cause those tears are wiped away. Did you notice that God reaches out to wipe our tears, to cry no more? And I'm sure all of us have gone through circumstances and situations where we have wept and we've had a period where there's been no tears and no sorrow, but we know that it will come. The best therapist in the world can't save us from that. There was night and then there was morning. So how do you leave this morning? Who are you believing? Who are you trusting? I can't stand firm. Yes, you can, because it's not about you. Behold your God. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, there is so much in these verses that takes our breath away. There is so much that we need to spend time just to sit and to ponder and to meditate upon. There is so much in these verses because it's filled with you. And who you are. And what you're doing. And what you will do. So hold us fast. And our prayer is this. That however we have come. That we can behold you with clarity. That same clarity as James and Peter and John. In the mountain transfiguration. That see Jesus in all his glory. And not be afraid. Because you hold us. And so we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.